This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. Ward 2 Councillor Sean Lewis joins us right now. Councillor Lewis, thanks for being here. My pleasure, Mike. And I think it's 35 That's what I've found. Okay, $35. Uh, based you, on the fines I've paid? <laughs> well, I was going to say, you and I obviously aren't parking incorrectly or illegally because both of us are kind of scratching our heads saying, I think it's 35 and that's what I've found. So 35 if you think that, and I think that, we'll go with that for now and until anybody tells us differently. Well, and occasionally you and I have been known to talk long enough for our meters to expire, so... <laughs> That's very true. And you know what? That's something that does come up for sure. Now, we'll talk about amounts of fines in a little while, because I really think they could go up. But you have thought that we need more free parking in the city. So give us an idea of what you have brought forward. Well, there's two items in particular that I I really want to tackle, Mike. And first of all, uh, when we have an on-street parking space where it's allowed, um, and it doesn't matter what time of the day or night, your, your vehicle can only be there 12 hours, and then you're subject to a ticket. Uh, and for me, you know, that's reflective of a different time and place. There, there are folks who work 12-hour shifts these days. So imagine you, you know, you drive to uh, a co-worker's house, park your car in front of their house, you carpool to work with them, uh, you're working a 12-hour shift, your drive to work's half an hour, your drive home from work's half an hour, you're at 13 hours right there. And just because you chose to carpool with somebody, because maybe their partner or spouse needed to be able to get their vehicle in and out of the driveway, so you couldn't park in their driveway, you parked on the street, now you got a ticket for carpooling. To me, that doesn't seem like the kind of, of thing we want to be fining people for. Or you're over at a friend's house on a Friday night, and you have a couple too many wobbly pops while you're listening to Mike Stubbs call the Knights game on uh, AM 980. And uh, you decide to spend the night on the couch, and you sleep in, you have a leisurely breakfast, you start to feel better, and you go out and there's a ticket on your car because you were there for more than 12 hours. So I'd like to see that change to 18 hours. Uh, it's, it's a relatively small change. It still addresses the fact that we don't want people leaving derelict vehicles on the side of the road. Uh, it has to be a vehicle that's, that's ready and able to be driven. But I think it's not unreasonable at all to just give folks a little more time to recognize that in this day and age, 12 hours is not a a super long time to be uh, parked in front of somebody's home. No. But the other one is this overnight parking ban that we have from Labor Day till Victoria Day, which ostensibly is there to allow for better winter snow maintenance. I don't know about you, Mike, but I can't remember it snowing in September any time in recent memory. I hardly remember it snowing this winter. And uh, when it comes to Victoria Day, I, I mean, I certainly can remember some really wet, rainy camping weekends, but I can't remember ever camping in the snow. And to, to have a, a parking ban that length of time, 75% of the year, you can't park uh, overnight on the street where it's otherwise allowed. So I want to see that changed. I want it to start November 1st and end April 30th. And I want it to end this April 30th. And I'll tell you why I think that, that uh, those dates matter is those are the dates when we actually have snow plows available. So I don't know why we have an overnight parking ban in September for snow clearing when the city doesn't even have plows ready to go or plows under contract in September. So to me, and from what I heard, while I was campaigning, this was an issue that I heard, so I'm keeping a campaign promise, but I'm keeping it because I agree with folks as well. It feels to me like this is just a cash grab. 
and I don't feel like, you know, budgeting for the city should be done based on the uh, policy should be based on how many fines we can collect. Policy should be based on uh, what makes sense and where we're going to apply fines uh, in a way that we're asking for compliance rather than uh, just looking for a revenue stream. So I want to shorten the overnight parking ban, uh, make it applicable only during those months where we have snow plows even available to maintain the roads and let people stay 18 instead of 12 hours. And that would take us, once again, the dates would be that, that we would have no no problem free parking on streets? So you could start free parking on streets uh, on May the 1st, and you would be good right through till November the 1st. Makes sense to me. I, I like this. Now, you, are, you brought up the idea of revenue from fines. You will have people saying, hey, we could see a reduction in revenue. Is there a way in your mind to combat that? Well, we could. And I'll tell you, I think that it would not be unreasonable. Uh, when we want to look at compliance, because, listen, we issued thousands uh, of these tickets uh, in the last four years. Uh, you know, I'm looking at the numbers. It would be 17,000 tickets uh, that we wouldn't write um, between September and November. And it'd be another 5,000 tickets that we wouldn't write in the month of May. So, you know, you're talking about 22,000 tickets gone. Uh, however, we do want to discourage, and we do hand out tickets between that November and that, uh, so the November 1st, May 1st period that I'm suggesting we keep in place, we still hand out thousands of tickets there. So people are not following the rules, even though there's a permit process where you can register your car and, and get permission to, to leave it on the street. People aren't even following that. So maybe the way to increase compliance is to bump that ticket up an extra $5 or so, um, so that if you're still breaking the rules, like we give me a lot more flexibility. If you're still going to break them, it's going to cost you an extra five bucks. And that I think would go, would, would pretty much even out where the, and you know, give or take, because obviously the number of tickets rise and fall each year. Uh, but I think that that would go a long way to meeting that budget gap that we might create by not bringing in that ticket fine revenue. And to think that a ticket is about 35 bucks right now, depending on, and that's just for your, your regular old ticket, I think that sounds low. I think you could raise that by $15. I think you could raise it by 25 And while you'd get a little backlash, in the end, you want to avoid the ticket? Don't park illegally. That's what it comes down to. Well, and that's why I think that, you know, $5 is the place to start. Um, because, like you said, we don't park illegally. We give people 15 free parking passes during the winter during that ban period that they can still use. So now they're going to have a shorter period of time and still have 15 passes. So they should be able to use those 15 passes judiciously enough to, to make them last uh, for what will be six months now instead of nine months. But if you're not going to follow the rules at all, then I don't think you know hitting people with an extra five bucks uh, is really uh, going to be something that's going to break the bank. It, I, I don't want to be unreasonable. I don't want these to be, you know, really punitive. I mean, I don't wouldn't want to charge people $100 for something like this, but there are situations and there are roads where it is a problem, and it is a problem for our snow plows to get the roads cleared. So I think if, if we're going to uh, give people more flexibility in half the year, then in the other half of the year when we have a ban, it's not unreasonable to say, well, if you can't follow the rules, it's going to cost you a little more. Councillor Lewis, thank you so much for raising the issue. Timeline on this. What comes up next? Well, this is going to come to Civic Works next week. 
and we will have a, a discussion on it at the committee level. And then we will bring it forward to the next council meeting. And if all goes well, we will have the parking ban lifted on April 30th this year instead of on Victoria Day. Uh, and then we won't see it come back on Labor Day. We won't have it in place again until November 1st. So we can get this done very quickly. We can get it done so it's in effect this spring. Uh, it's just going to take the, the will of council at committee next week and then the council as a whole uh, a week after that. Good stuff. Councillor Lewis, thanks so much for the time. Uh, always a pleasure, Mike, and I'll be uh, tuning to listen to you again uh, Friday night. I will be there. Okay. <laughs> Take care. Have a great day. Lauren Reed is the president of Privacy Pro and joins us on London Live to take this conversation deeper than Clearview AI, to take it deeper than facial recognition software. Lauren, how are you? I'm well. Thanks for reaching out today. Well, it's a pleasure to have you on the show because we're going to be getting into some pretty interesting things when it comes to technology. But let's kind of just begin with Clearview AI. You've been following this for a while. Can you believe how big this story has grown Absolutely. Uh, I'm not surprised at all that this story is, you know, dominating the conversation around technology, around policing. It's touching so many different areas. I think that after Cambridge Analytica uh, and the scandal uh, with using people's social media to influence what they're doing, this type of issue has gotten a lot more attention. And so I'm not surprised at all that this one picked up so quickly and has just been uh, such a big deal in all in, in around the world. Do you think it's a healthy conversation for all of us to realize that this technology is out there and that it could be both beneficial for law enforcement, but at the same time uh, uh, a little bit uh, a little bit shaky when it comes to privacy? It's absolutely critical that people are understanding this. It's a really uh, nuanced conversation, but it doesn't require you to be really technically savvy. I think that it's good that people are starting to think about what does technology mean to me, even if we don't totally understand how the technology works. Yeah, very good point, because at times, you know, we're dealing with a lot of things that come up every day that you don't necessarily understand what it's doing. I mean, even posting something on Facebook or on Twitter, do we really understand how far reaching that can actually be? Probably not, right? Yeah, I mean, I think I think a lot of us think about, you know, social media and our data and our privacy and think, well, you know what, I don't have anything to hide. So this doesn't matter to me. And this case with Clearview AI and the use of facial recognition technology in public spaces should really have us thinking more uh, about what this invasive use of our personal information means to us, because it's not just about having things to hide. It's about having autonomy and having agency and how your data is actually being used. And so I think it's really great that we're having this conversation now. Lauren rejoining us, president of Privacy Pro. And Lauren, you've been working on something that kind of expands on this because we get thinking Clearview AI, we get thinking facial recognition software, and we've heard some of the stories that we talked about before we even began the interview. But facial recognition software is not really the only 
recognition software out there. What else are we even dealing with that would allow us to be identified without giving our name and contact information just by being us? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Clearview AI is one company, and it's getting a lot of attention for the way that they've gone about this. But what we're talking about here, what I mean, is facial recognition technology. And that's a very specific type of biometric information, meaning information about our bodies. And so we should be thinking more broadly about this type of data. So a lot of people don't realize that our gait, so the way that we walk, is also a unique signature. And as technology develops, it's actually pretty easy to detect someone's heartbeat, another unique signature. And so in response to all of this concern, which is a very, very valid concern about Clearview AI, you hear experts saying, oh, we need to ban facial recognition technology. And what I've been working on um, is is writing about the importance of of not being so short-sighted, not being reactive to this one use by this one company. We should be thinking more uh, broadly about all the different ways that our data can be collected without our knowledge and used to uniquely identify us. And the other thing about biometric data is you can't change it. You can change your name. You can change your password. Um, there's there's remedies available to us with more uh, other types of digital information and personal data. But when it comes to biometric data, it's especially sensitive because if it is compromised, there's nothing we can do to change our fingerprints or the way that we walk or the way that our face is structured. Wow. Let's dig into this a little bit. Again, Lauren Reed joining us, president of Privacy Pro. I think you've stunned a lot of people by saying that our gait is unique or the idea that technology could read our heartbeat. Now, it's one thing to wear you know, a watch that tracks your heartbeat or a fitness tracker. Can we go deeper than that in terms of technology that can detect someone's heartbeat? Mm-hmm. There's very, very sensitive technology that picks up on variations in sound waves. And as that continues to develop, um, it gets a lot cheaper. It's the kind of thing that people are starting to think about, oh, well, you know, maybe if we had an understanding of where people are and how they move through public space, you know, we could make better decisions. Most of this technology comes from good intentions. It comes from a good place. We think, oh, you know what? We want the public to be safe, so we want to be able to identify bad people. So this technology is a good thing. But what what we have seen, um, and you know, throughout history, is that what starts off with good intentions and results in a whole bunch of information that can be misused uh, could be really detrimental not just to individuals but to broader society and the communities that we live in. Yeah, you put something in the wrong hands, and there are wrong hands out there, and I don't think we're ever going to stop that. That's just part of humanity more than anything else. It it can be used for all kinds of different things, and that's been part of the, the Clearview AI concern, the idea that one company would have all of this information. Hey, what are they doing? Hey, would they allow someone to use it but not allow somebody else to use it? And I guess the almighty buck factors into this as well. Money can, they can make a dent in this, can't Absolutely. I mean, it just came out today that, in you know, they say that it was designed for police forces, but it's also being used in shopping malls. I think they said that Macy's was using it um, probably to prevent shoplifting, um, but that some of their investors also got 
their individual access, there was a story about this guy using it on his daughter's boyfriend and bringing up information to do this kind of like background checking in your pocket. And so, again, we, uh, many of us, I know myself, I think, well, you know, I really have nothing to hide. But we also see uh, a history of discrimination and misuse against marginalized people. So I think that those are really uh, important voices to involve in this conversation and use cases to consider. Um, we need to take an equity lens and we need to look across all the different impacts that this could have to all different populations. Lauren Reed joining us, president of Privacy Pros. We just talk about the technologies that do exist to tell who we are, where it's not just, yeah, I signed this piece of paper or, yeah, I admitted to being here or somebody saw me with their eyes. It's being able to identify somebody by their face, but not only by their face, by their heartbeat, by the way that they move, by the way that they walk. And, Lauren, all of these technologies seem to be advancing very quickly. Do you see that as a major danger? You know, they're going to, all technology is increasing very quickly. And what we've seen in terms of trying to regulate it or trying to ban it in the past is that doesn't work because these things take a lot of time. And, uh, you know, we still have laws on the books that address fax machine privacy, but we don't have anything that relates specifically to mobile location data. And so regulators and lawmakers around the world are trying to keep up with this. But there's a market for this technology. There's money to be made, and it's going to continue to develop. And as we learn more uh, and it becomes more widely uh, available, it's going to get cheaper. And so it's not feasible to think about banning this specific technology. For the reasons we talked about earlier, is that one, it's not just facial recognition. We're kind of playing whack-a-mole, if you will, with the different ways of identifying us when we move through public space. Um, but, you know, China right now is using, now not Clearview AI, but facial recognition technology and biometrics to try to control the COVID-19 outbreak by looking at where people are moving to not only track the virus, but to enforce quarantines. And so, and the London, UK uh, police uh, did a very public and transparent pilot and said, yep, we think this is a good idea. We're going to continue doing it. So absolutely, this, the, the technology is not going away. And so banning it is just not the right approach. It's not going to protect people because it's not going to work. But then you mentioned the words broader conversation. We need a broader conversation. Who do we need to have involved in something like that in order to, you know, just not do the knee jerk? No, no, no. We'll ban that and it'll go away. If it's not going to go away, we have to understand it and make sure that there are ways that it needs to be used. Who needs to be in that conversation? Well, I think that we can learn from San Francisco. So San Francisco was the first city to ban facial recognition technology use by police and public sector agencies. So they involved a number of stakeholders and members of different communities that had been impacted from police misuse of data. So you can infer what I mean by that, which is marginalized communities that tend to be more um, targeted with that type of information. And so uh, it started with BART, which is the transit system in San Francisco, and was expanded to all police use of facial recognition technology in their policing. And I think that's a great example of bringing context to the conversation and thinking about the use rather than just the tech. 
here in Canada, we have an amazing source to learn from in this type of thinking, and it's the First Nations Information Governance Council. So years ago, they put forth a framework for thinking about community privacy and group privacy, and I really don't think that that gets enough attention because uh, Indigenous people have long been thinking about what's good for a group and, and how they would like to have sovereignty over the way that their data is used. So I think that's absolutely a group that can be learned from um, and we can seek leadership from in this topic. Obviously, racialized communities should be part of the conversation. And I really think that young people need to be part of the conversation because our attitudes about privacy and public space, um, they not only do they change as we get older, um, but young people who have grown up as digital natives have different uh, mindset on these things. And they, we shouldn't be making decisions uh, for future generations. We should be making these decisions with them. Yeah. What a great point. What a great, because their attitudes are completely different. You check out a teenager's snap map on Snapchat and you've got hundreds of people who are on there and you think, but they know where you are. And they kind of shrug and say, yeah, but I know where they are and I yeah. trust them. I've, I've given them permission. I know who they are and they have no issue with that. Meanwhile, you, you look at anybody else and it's no, 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 no I don't want anybody to know where I am right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, here here in Toronto, there's a response to the gun violence issue from last year where they decided to put up cameras in, you know, priority neighborhoods for policing. And they're, you know, if they did consult with the people and leaders in those communities, they didn't listen to them because there was a backlash against increasing the amount of surveillance. So I am a white woman. I feel safe when the police are there. I feel like I can call the police and that they're going to help me. And that is a position of really great privilege. And so my voice should not be the dominant voice in a conversation about the police collecting information about people in order to enforce the law or to identify criminals or to predict the behavior of people that they think might commit crimes. And so I think that a really inclusive discussion about this is critical. Well, this has been an amazing discussion. Lauren, I hope we get a chance to talk again. Thank you so much for your Absolutely. time. Thanks, Mike. Geraldine joins us. Geraldine has been a part of the Activate program and can kind of describe what it's done for her. And Jennifer Hassan is with us from Heart and Stroke and the Activate program itself. Uh, so maybe, Jennifer, you can start telling us what the Activate program is all about. Well, the Activate program is very exciting. It's a free, and I'm going to say free again, six-month program that encourages participants to manage their blood pressure through healthy eating, moving a little bit more, and reducing stress. Healthy eating, moving more, reducing stress. All those things sound fine. They sound doable. They are doable. Making small life changes like that can help you to prevent developing high blood pressure, which is the number one risk factor for stroke, and it's one of the most major risk factors for heart disease. So through the Activate program, people can really become their own health ambassador 
and take advantage of a lot of the incentives that we provide through the program to manage their blood pressure. And you mentioned free programs. So even before we get to how the program works, how we can get involved, Geraldine's story, can we talk a little bit about just blood pressure and, and people walking around and maybe not necessarily knowing it's, it's tough to feel that you have high blood pressure, isn't it? Most definitely. It's, it's one of the risk factors that's sort of silent. And with the Activate program, what's important is you begin by having an in-person appointment with a trained volunteer who's going to measure your blood pressure. Many of us don't even know what our blood pressure is, what's the number, is it normal, is it elevated. So the Activate program really targets those with elevated blood pressure that are on the cusp of having hypertension, which is high blood pressure. Do they have to have high blood pressure in order to join the Activate program? No, anyone can actually make an appointment to have their blood pressure measured. And there, are, there is some criteria um, which would make you eligible for the program. But once you pass through the criteria, you're automatically enrolled and you'll be connected with your own personal online health coach. Excellent. We are talking with Jennifer Hassan from Heart and Stroke, and we are also talking with Geraldine, who has been through the Activate program. Geraldine, can you tell us kind of your story getting involved and going through? Um, Yes, I'd be happy to do that. I was uh, concerned about my own health anyway and wanting to get more active. Um, We all have busy schedules, and that can sometimes um, defer your decision or just stop you from doing it. I happened to be looking at the social media on Facebook, and I saw the um, the advertisement there from the Heart and Stroke and called Activate Program, and right away I thought, what is this all about? Um, so when I looked into it, it, it was exactly speaking my language. I wanted to know um, how to get healthier, um, it, it easily listed the criteria that you that they would prefer you to be. Um, for instance, that you'd be a non-smoker, that you were not on blood pressure medications. Um, it even gave ideas of what the blood pressure um, should be, and that you can just come and get tested, and then you're going to see if you do qualify. Um, it just, to me, I had already gone to my doctor, so I knew some of my numbers I wanted to know, and I just wanted to get in better health and better shape. And I had no idea even the extent of the incentives, which are fantastic, the encouragement that you get, um, and how this program personally empowered me to learn how to take better control of my health by providing the education Um, either through the online site where you can actually uh, participate or go back later and look in a webinar. Um, It clearly showed diet, um, meaning diet as far as um, healthier uh, fats that might be uh, something that you'd want, um, foods that might have hidden sugar or salt in them that you're not even aware of. Um, Also about exercise. What is exercise? What's aerobic exercise? What's anaerobic exercise? Uh, I also learned about what foods or snacks you can eat before, during, and after exercise, which was wonderful. Um, and they, and once you are enrolled and you do have your own health coach online anytime to answer questions, it may take 
a little bit of time for the answers to come back. You will get them. You will always um, be updated to new new incentives that are there. Um, I was going to say there's uh, something new right now where um, some Ryerson students had um, focused on um, fads, uh, fad diets, whether they're friends or foes. There's just so much learning opportunity that I just had no idea about. Um, and then it, the other thing that I loved was the, were the challenges. Um, when I started walking, because walking was easier for me and that was the best thing that I could do, um, and then online uh, encouragement came along to say, now there's a challenge for 7,000 steps three times a week. And just with that challenge alone, not only was I motivated, I kept it up. I went beyond that. I personally had lost weight and inches. I now walk faster and longer and look forward to it. <laughs> um, it's, just, it's, it's just been amazing. Um, I just feel so much better. Um, and it, I, I suppose the, the education that you get on it, because I love learning, um, it has been fantastic, and that you're able to record your own um, progress. So there's wellness trackers for uh, how many steps you took that day uh, or the exercise or even the stretching. It's, it's really been quite amazing. Well, this program is now available as of today in London. And Jennifer, you've got a testimonial saying, hey, this works. This is fantastic. Thank you for bringing it to London. Thank you, Geraldine. I'm really happy to hear that you've had great success, um, and thank you for being part of the program. Mike, I just want to mention, in addition to the support from the online personal health coach, we have great partners in Activate, and we're very grateful to their support because participants also get a free two-month membership with the YMCA, a workshop with a dietitian through Loblaws, PC optimum points to reward those healthy behaviors. And until the end of March, we're actually going to pay you for being part of the program because Interact is giving a $10 e-transfer just for being part of Activate. Okay. Well, to be part of Activate, to see if you are somebody who is eligible like Geraldine, YMCA, and that's the Bostwick YMCA at 501 Southdale Road West. Is there a, a time frame today that we have to be there tomorrow? Well, actually, you can book appointments if you visit our website because there's a lot of different YMCAs that are going to be um, having blood pressure appointments available to uh, be eligible for Activate. So the best thing to do would be to visit the website, heartandstroke.ca slash activate. Excellent. Jennifer, Geraldine, thank you so much for being a part of London Live today. Thank thank you, you Mike. Thank you, Geraldine. It's been wonderful. Thank you. You've been listening to the London Live podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3 